The Taliban are now firmly in control of Afghanistan. But how will they govern? There are many layers and answers to this question, but one is a particular concern for the Taliban, and that is the issue of money. Did you know that for many decades now, Afghanistan has, more than most countries, depended on foreign subsidies for even the most basic functions of its government? So now, where will the Taliban get that foreign money? Which at times accounted for as much as 40 to 50% of Afghanistan's gross domestic product. Hey there, news peelers. Today's October 8, 2021. And this is Adele with Appeal.News, a history podcast for our news and current affairs. Once a week, we select a news item and peel the history behind it to gain perspective from the past. <laughs> oh boy, sometimes history gives us a good laugh. Sometimes it offends. And sometimes it just, it just shocks. Like, did that really happen? I'm telling you, you can't make up some of this stuff that happened in our past. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink or both. And let's get into it. The news from Afghanistan is bleak. For example, according to the BBC, the CEO of the Islamic Bank of Afghanistan is raising the alarm that his country's financial industry is at the precipice of an existential crisis. To be sure, Afghanistan's economy was in dire straits before the Taliban took over. But now, the West has frozen international funds to Afghanistan. And the issue isn't just finance. According to the Wall Street Journal, the harsh reality of Taliban's rule is far different than the placid image they want to project to the world. For example, the Taliban have banned teenage girls from going to school, and many working women have been sent back home. And in some provinces, women are not allowed to leave their homes without a male escort. In addition, the Taliban have reintroduced harsh Islamic punishments including public executions. Earlier this week, the New York Times reported that more than 100 people associated with Afghanistan's National Institute of Music fled the country, many planning to settle in Portugal. When I asked Professor Timothy Noonan what is the one thing that he wants our audience to remember about Afghanistan, he immediately talked about art. Afghanistan's art and Afghanistan's artists many of whom are fleeing their homeland. I spoke with Professor Noonan so we can better understand the Taliban. Who are they? And where do their beliefs fit within the larger world of Islam? And how was America's involvement in Afghanistan different than the Soviets some 40 years ago? Professor Noonan is a lecturer in the Department of Global History at the Free University of Berlin, from where he joined us for this podcast conversation. He leads 
a Volkswagen Foundation research group devoted to the history of Islamism during the Cold War. In his work, he looks at how actors from the former Soviet Union, Iran, and Afghanistan have sought to challenge the Western-dominated world order. His first book examined the history of international development in Afghanistan during the Cold War, looking in particular at the role of the Soviet Union and Western humanitarian NGOs. In 2020, he was awarded the Heinz Meyer Leibniz Prize, which is the major prize for early career researchers of the German Research Foundation. Professor Noonan is also a Fulbright scholar as well as a Rhodes scholar. Links to Professor Noonan's academic homepage and personal website, which detail his research and provide information about his many publications and projects, are provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So stay with me as Professor Noonan and I peel the history behind this news. This podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Spotify, Google, and Apple. And if you're listening to us on Apple, please write us a review. And don't keep it to yourself. Tell a friend about the Peel.News podcast. Professor Noonan, it is such a pleasure to have you on our program today. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. The main front page headline in today's Wall Street Journal print edition reads as such. Taliban proclaims Seoul rule as new Afghan regime named. And a headline from an article in the New York Times from yesterday reads, how will the Taliban rule this time. So let's get into it. Professor Noonan, who are the Taliban? Well, uh, thank you for having me on, Adele. It's really My pleasure. A, uh, it's really a pleasure, and uh, I'm looking forward to having the chance to uh, go into some detail on these issues and, and put for some sure. uh, meat on the bone, if you will. Um, I think one place to start with answering the question of who the Taliban are is to maybe zoom out a bit and say who they aren't. Um, you know, in who general, they are these, not. Who they are not, yeah, okay. in terms of um, sort of the history and, and giving us a framework to think through this. Um, in general, they're not um, urban. These are primarily rural Pashtuns from Eastern and Southern Afghanistan. Uh, they're certainly not uh, socialist or, or communist. They you know, claim to espouse a, a religious uh, sort of uh, Islamist ideology. Uh, and they're also not um, internationalists. That is to say, they're pretty focused on you know, Afghanistan being a nation state, they don't want all Muslims in the world to live in uh, one state. They kind of recognize the, the reality of the interstate system as we have it. Um, uh, and I think maybe a final place to start is that they tend uh, not to speak uh, European languages. You know, a lot of Afghan elites that we've uh, seen in recent years, whether uh, Hamid Karzai or Ashraf Ghani uh, spoke uh, pretty good English in the past, uh, maybe Afghan elites spoke um, what we would today call Urdu uh, or French, um, but most of these guys speak uh, Pashto uh, and perhaps some Urdu uh, as well. They're kind of emerging out of this uh, tribal belt um, between Afghanistan and Pakistan. And, um, you know, so I think this is one place for us to, to start thinking about the historical context. Uh, the word Taliban literally means uh, students. It's the plural, plural form of the word Talib um, uh, in uh, Persian and, uh, and Pashto. 
Um, so these are some maybe places for us to start uh, thinking with about who the the Taliban uh, are. Um, and when you say students, is that the word Taliban sort of religious students from um, like madrasas that are prevalent in Pakistan. Is that the sort of a student you mean? Yeah, so we'll get into this more throughout the conversation, but I think sure. just for a basic starting point, um, a lot of the actors that we're talking about now uh, are men who were born um, you know, in the 60s or 70s, um, were often turned into refugees as a result of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979. Mm -hmm. um, and as a result, ended up attending um, informal schooling, um, uh, attending religious uh, schools, uh, so-called uh, madrasas um, in Pakistan uh, during the 1980s and, and uh, 1990s, um, and were then, you know, be, became attracted to a certain set of uh, religious beliefs uh, towards ideas about what an Afghan state could look like, and were, uh, became a, a, a militia fighting force uh, that eventually took over Afghanistan um, in the course of the early 1990s and eventually Kabul in 1996. So when we talk about students in this context, we don't mean, you know, university students at a secular yeah. university. We mean uh, graduates of uh, religious seminaries, uh, we might say, uh, primarily in, uh, in uh, areas in, in Pakistan, uh, but also to some extent of uh, smaller village schools uh, in southern and eastern Afghanistan. But uh, that is the meaning of the name. You mentioned that the Taliban primarily speak or Pashto and some Urdu, and you sort of set that up as contrast, let's say, former President Hamid Karzai, who spoke English or, or some spoke French, I suppose. Do Taliban, now that you said that, this raises an interesting question, do Taliban primarily belong to a unified ethnic group? Is what unites them more religion or an ethnicity? Uh, well, some of that has been changing, but I think if you had to pick one, uh, historically, you would have to say that the Taliban is a primarily uh, Pashtun uh, movement of the Pashtun people. Um, you know, listeners of the show may have picked up on uh, Shah Mahmoud Hanifi's interview um, about a month ago. Uh, when we talk about Pashtuns, we're talking about an ethnic group of, I think, on the order of 40 to 50 million uh, people uh, who primarily live in uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan. Uh, today. Uh, I say it in that order because um, about twice as many Pashtuns live in Pakistan oh, wow. as do in Afghanistan um, itself. And we can maybe go into detail on some of the implications of this. Um, they speak a language, Pashto, which is uh, part of the so-called Indo-Iranian Indo uh, language family, um, but it's, um, it's as close to the Persian language, uh, let's say, as, you know, maybe uh, you know, English is to, to German, perhaps, or, uh, you know, uh, in other words, these are not mutually comprehensible languages. Um, and indeed, when I talk about this urban rural divide, or, you know, folks speaking French versus, uh, you know, uh, Urdu as a second language, uh, we're getting here to uh, ways in which these communities and peoples have, have interacted with the world, and in particular, uh, European uh, powers uh, throughout history. Is there also an element perhaps uh, sort of a minor element, but is there an element of Pashto versus Persian Afghans? Is, is, is there that divide, a sort of ethnic divide? Uh, there's certainly a divide, uh, although I, I wouldn't speak of it so much in terms of uh, Persian uh, Afghans. You know, we, if we want to uh, provide a bit more context for listeners at the start, we can note that uh, Pashtuns, um, 
while you know, there's never really been an accurate census conducted in Afghanistan, so it's very hard to say with any confidence uh, who actually lives in the country and how many people live in the country uh, and in what proportion. But um, I think it's probably fair to say that uh, the plurality, uh, probably not the majority, but a plurality of the population of Afghanistan, maybe 40 to 45% uh, are Pashtuns um, with uh, you know, other major ethnic groups, including uh, Tajiks in the North and Northeast, uh, Uzbeks uh, in the North, um, and a uh, Shia minority, the so-called Hazara uh, in central Afghanistan. There are many other smaller minorities, um, but in some sense, when we talk about the Taliban as a sort of Pashtun movement, um, we are looking at it in opposition to other uh, ethnic uh, groups um, in Afghanistan. We talked about their name, Taliban being uh, students and in particular religious students. What is the religion of Taliban? Uh, as I understand it, they're Sunni Muslims, but what is really their creed, their belief? Well, uh, you know, I think, so to start off with, uh, you know, we can say that they're, they're Sunnis. They are often associated with the so-called uh, Deobandi movement, which was a, um, a religious movement that emerged out of British India um, in the late- w Would um, you repeat that again? What movement? Uh, Deobandi. Deobandi, uh, okay. This was a uh, religious movement that began in uh, British India uh, in the late uh, 19th century um, and often um, is associated with having a um, uh, difficult or tense relationship uh, with uh, Sufi orders um, within um, uh, Islam without going into to too much detail. I think maybe a, a good place to uh, contrast it with, though, is, um, you know, when we look at the kinds of rule that the Taliban have implemented and, and who we might compare them with, um, they are often implementing systems of rule, these, these very, you know, brutal restrictions on uh, women's rights, on uh, music, um, uh, you know, on, uh, on amusement or, or free, free time activities. These are often kind of a, a fusion between um, Pashtun uh, rural codes or, or sort of ethical codes uh, coming from a very conservative uh, rural uh, society um, and uh, certain readings of, of Islam, uh, readings of Islam that are often uh, very hostile towards things like celebrating the Prophet Muhammad's birthday, towards celebrating the uh, Persian and also Afghan uh, New Year uh, that corresponds with the spring equinox. Um, so there's kind of a fusion going on here between norms of a very conservative rural society with all that means for kind of patriarchy and, uh, and a diminished role for women, um, uh, but also uh, uh, you know, a kind of um, uh, uh, skepticism towards uh, national, uh, these national customs. So if that's the case, what sort of polity do Taliban envisage? Uh, I'll just throw some examples that me and perhaps general audience sort of are familiar with. Do they see themselves as forming into a present-day Iran, present-day Pakistan, or present-day Saudi Arabia? Certainly not something like Jordan that's relatively open, yeah, right? Well, certainly not uh, like uh, Saudi Arabia or Jordan in that uh, there's not a you know, hereditary uh, monarchy. Um, you know, this is a, uh, at least we look at the Taliban system from, from 96 to 2001, um, it was a so-called emirate, which meant that it was ruled by an emir or a ruler. Uh, this was not somebody who was, you know, ruling by, by dint of, um, of who their father was uh, or, you know, uh, uh, scholarly accomplishment uh, necessarily, as is uh, theoretically the case uh, in the Islamic Republic of Iran. 
but who might be elected by a council of, um, of uh, Islamic scholars um, uh, who would then appoint a government of uh, ministers and so on, but there would not be uh, popular elections. Uh, there wouldn't be a uh, you know, properly elected uh, uh, leg uh, legislature. Um, and in fact, um, if we look at the experience of 1996 to 2001, um, you know, in some ways it's, it's hard to call the Taliban uh, a state. They really outsourced a lot of things that we would associate with government, such as uh, the education system, uh, the medical system, uh, you know, having people who are in charge of running uh, traffic or sanitation or water um, to NGOs. Uh, the head of the Taliban at that time uh, didn't even reside in Kabul um, for most of the five years that the Taliban were in power. So in some ways, when we talk about things like a state, um, you know, we're bringing to the table a lot of assumptions about, uh, you know, who who is going to run the schools, who's going to pick up the garbage, who's going to, uh, you know, uh, yeah, that's what I would on. have thought. Yeah. Uh, and and that's kind of the puzzle here is a lot of these functions of administration are not haven't historically at least been something that they were terribly interested in in doing. Is the emir supposed to be for life, or is does this emir of this Taliban sort of emirate go in cycles every few years and new emir is elected, or is that something that we're waiting to see how it uh, it is planned out? Uh, well, I, to, to my knowledge, it's not um, sort of uh, written down or, uh, yeah. you know, uh, codified um, in, in that way. I think it was a much more um, ad hoc system. And, and we had a note here that, um, you know, both in the 1990s and certainly since 2001, the Taliban have been remarkable for suffering uh, many, many casualties to their leaders. Um, you know, people at the top levels of their organization were in Guantanamo Bay and in, in, in Bagram, a uh, military and torture base to the north of Kabul or under house arrest in Pakistan. And yet a lot of these guys kept coming back or they kept refilling the ranks after uh, the guy ahead of them got killed um, on, the, uh, on the battlefield. So I think there was a lot of uh, ad hoc uh, organization here. Uh, Which makes them more resilient. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, this is, um, you know, in some regards, you could you could describe it as more organic, uh, although I think one of the puzzles for uh, Western analysts, and, and this is a point that um, the uh, British uh, scholar Anatole Levin has noted, you know, when we think about rebel movements like the Algerian resistance to the French in the 1950s, or the Irish Republican army against the British um, in, say, the 70s and the 80s, mm -hmm. typically these organizations are really interested in building up you know, parallel education systems uh, in saying, hey, we're going to uh, provide a better system of, uh, of courts uh, for you. Uh, we're going to, you know, pick up the trash better for you. Um, in many cases, what I, I think distinguishes the Taliban has been this uh, lack of willingness or lack of interest in building up a, what we would see as a, as a modernizing uh, uh, state with all of these, these uh, governance uh, functions. And that's kind of the, one of the puzzles we have to wrap our head around uh, when, when thinking about, um, the history of governance in Afghanistan over the last, you know, 100 years. So do you think this time around they're a little different? Are they going to be more interested in building a modern state? Is this an improved, at least philosophically speaking, uh, Taliban? Well, um, I know this I requires think... a bit of a speculation, but... Uh... Um, I, I mean, I think on one level, we just have to note simply the fact that um, you know, many journalists have been uh, murdered or assassinated. Uh, you know, we've seen Afghan women in particular go to the streets 
um, in Afghan cities in recent days only to be shot at or uh, beaten uh, by uh, Taliban members on the on the streets of Kabul. So I think that um, you know domestically on one level you have to say uh, no, there really isn't a lot of evidence uh, that they have uh, changed. I think that what has changed um, is perhaps not so much their behavior, but rather the um, regional and international context in which they have to operate. Uh, one theme that I would like listeners to, to leave this conversation with is that Afghanistan has, for at least the last century, um, almost always been dependent on foreign subsidies to survive. And this isn't because Afghans are, you know, bad at business or, you know, lack the skills to succeed in uh, international society, but it has to do with a lot of uh, structural ways in, in which the state came into existence and kind of the history of, of geopolitics. And so today, what I think is going to be interesting or uh, a puzzle for us to unpack is we have states like uh, China, uh, Russia, uh, Qatar, um, you know, seeking to um, to have their own ties uh, one way or the other uh, with the Taliban. And you know, I think the the question is how are they? How is the Taliban going to uh, try to um, you know moderate their image as opposed to practice? Let's say. Uh, to appeal to these uh, uh, donors, and perhaps you know the Chinese or the uh, Qataris uh, don't really um, you know give a damn uh, about uh, what's you know, happening inside Afghanistan. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I like the way you phrase that: moderate their image versus practice. Did I did, did I repeat that correctly? Uh, yeah, and I think just simply the fact that uh, yeah, it, it, exactly. And I think you know if we look to the you know if you look to the last twenty years of American engagement, or if you look to the nineteen nineties. Um, the Taliban had, uh, to put it mildly, an image problem um, in the United States, primarily because of their um, Love it, uh, treatment problem. of, uh, due to their treatment of, um, of women. And, um, you know, I think it's kind of an open question as to whether, um, you know, certainly Pakistan, but also uh, China or Russia or Qatar uh, will necessarily have the uh, same um, criteria, let's say, of conditioning aid on uh, human rights practices, women's rights uh, in particular. I'll end this segment with, with, with this question. How do Taliban recruit? Well, let me, let me ask it even more, more concisely. How is it that they were able to recruit? Sitting here in America, you, know, you would think that new government and all the promises of freedom and education and become part of the international community how was it that the taliban were able to recruit so many young afghans well i, I think there's a couple of factors at play here i think for one if we look at this from a kind of big structural perspective the taliban primarily emerged from regions of afghanistan that historically had a very troubled relationship with any central afghan state regardless of whether it was communist or monarchy or you know, run by you know American-educated technocrats. Um, for a lot of these folks, you know, when the state comes to you, it's usually in the form of a tax collector or a policeman or somebody trying to recruit, uh, or not only recruit, force your son um, into military service. And so these were, you know, by and large, rural communities uh, that really didn't want to have anything to do with uh, a state that they viewed as essentially a predatory or criminal um, enterprise. Um, and so I think. Interesting. Even setting aside any of the ideological uh, piece to this, uh, there's this kind of uh, rural-urban uh, tension um, in an extreme way that we can describe. Uh, beyond that, though, I think that you know most Afghans, uh, you know, you know, pride themselves on being an independent country. They resent foreign occupation. 
Um, you know, the United States uh, was seen by, by many people in Afghanistan as a, uh, you know, occupying imperialist power that needed to be uh, repelled, uh, just as perhaps many Afghans today present the fact that the head of Pakistani intelligence uh, is recently in Kabul and apparently coordinating uh, Taliban uh, drone attacks on, on parts of the Afghan resistance. But, you know, I think this, this kind of uh, sense of national independence and national pride um, uh, played a, a very big part. And then finally, you know, we can, maybe we don't have time to go into all the detail of this, but I think in some ways the um, uh, organizational structure of the Taliban, particularly for young Pashtun men from these rural areas of Southern and Eastern Afghanistan, offered a relatively egalitarian, um, meritocratic, you might say, way to kind of prove yourself and to um, become influential, to acquire power, uh, and to defend your country um, in contrast to these sort of more mafia or technocratic uh, style structures of, of the elite that the United States installed after 2001. And again, to close this section, here we come back to the, you know, speaking French or English versus speaking Pashto or Urdu thing. Um, if you are coming from a rural village in Southern Afghanistan, um, you know, this has nothing to do with your talent or intelligence, but there's gonna be very few ways for you to acquire the credentials the polish, uh, the skills that you need to become a kind of internationally connected, uh, uh, you know, a member of the international community in, in good standing, so to speak. Um, you know, for a lot of these uh, fighters, I think that, uh, you know, engaging in resistance, defending the homeland, um, and working in an organization that was seen as more grassroots, if you like, uh, more uh, autochthonous, if you like, uh, was, you know, seen as more legitimate than being part of a technocratic government that had, you know, faked elections and and so on and so forth. That's interesting. With respect to your first point, the regional differences, you're kind of echoing what uh, Professor Hanifi said in an earlier podcast that we had, and one that I think us Americans don't appreciate. Kabul is in Afghanistan. Don't judge Kabul. Don't judge by Kabul. I'm sorry. Don't judge Afghanistan, but what you see in Kabul, the rest of the country is vastly, vastly different. That's one of the things, and that's that's where the Taliban come from. Interesting. Uh, Professor Noonan, why don't we take a short break and then talk about two terms that you have used in your academic work, Islamist internationalism and humanitarian invasion. We'll be right back. Professor Noonan, one of your book projects is provisionally titled Islamist Internationalism Between the Cold War and Decolonization. What do you mean by Islamist internationalism? By um, Islamist internationalism, um, I mean the idea and practice of uh, Muslims, um, particularly in the 20th century, uh, trying to work beyond the framework of the nation state uh, to combat colonialism and to combat foreign um, influence. Um, you know, when we talk about internationalism or anti-colonialism, I think people often think about moments in history like maybe Egypt and the Suez Canal. Um, uh, some yeah. listeners might be familiar with um, the Bandung Conference, which was a conference of uh, leaders from uh, countries like Indonesia and uh, uh, Egypt, or people might be familiar with the non-aligned movement, uh, kind of a, a grouping of countries such as Egypt and uh, Yugoslavia 
and so on. I'm really interested though in the ways in which um, Islamic actors have thought about how they could work together and maybe partner with anti-colonial movements, including from uh, outside of the Middle East uh, and the Muslim world to advance uh, Muslim uh, interests. Uh, so in particular, I'm interested in the ways- about Does this the, include political interests or this is sort of social and religious uh, and cultural interests? Uh, yeah, political in particular for this project. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in the ways in which um, uh, actors such as uh, some actors who were involved in the early years of the Islamic Republic of Iran, as well as um, in Saudi Arabia, uh, began forming um, kind of unlikely partnerships. You know, why is it that Iranian actors uh, allied not only with Palestinian groups, uh, but also with national liberation movements from the Philippines or from Latin America? You know, why did these um, you know, Shia Muslim actors see themselves as having a common fate and a common project with, you know, guerrilla fighters from Uruguay or from the jungles of the Southern Philippines. Which or likewise, are Sunni, who are Sunni, right? Uh, well, in the case of the Filipinos, uh, yes, but uh, obviously in the case of, uh, you know, Latin American uh, Marxist uh, guerrillas, uh, you know, neither uh, Muslim nor, you know, yeah. really having a, a very, ostensibly a very similar political project or uh, likewise, you know, what is it, why is it that uh, actors from Saudi Arabia start working together with the Franco regime in Spain or with the Roman Catholic Church uh, to push back communism uh, from the Middle East? So I'm interested in, the way, in these ways in which um, Islamic actors, you know, found common cause with uh, partners um, who were not necessarily themselves, you know, invested or interested at all in uh, political Islam. When you say uh, Islamic actors are some of these governmental actors as well as sort of non-governmental groups? In the case of uh, Iran, would be the government, right? Yeah, for a lot of my research, we're, we're talking uh, in the period before 1978, 1979, we're talking about individual activists, uh, primarily Iranian, but some from Iraq, some from Afghanistan, uh, some from uh, Lebanon, uh, who really felt that uh, there was an ideological threat posed to Muslims by uh, Soviet and also Chinese communism. There was a sense that Islam was totally exhausted as an ideological force and that Muslims had no answer to the scientific, to the supposedly scientific ideologies uh, that were so prominent in the 1950s and 1960s. And moreover, they didn't really know how to organize themselves uh, against communist parties. Um, communist parties, especially in the 1950s and 1960s, like in the Soviet Union and China, were also big supporters of national liberation movements and governments such as Egypt or uh, Indonesia during this period. So what I'm interested in is how individual activists, above all in the Shia world, so places like Iran and, and Iraq, kind of um, copied to some extent or mimicked uh, some of these communist practices and in doing so uh, really changed what uh, pan-Islamism uh, meant, uh, you know, compared to the days of the Ottoman Empire or uh, the 19th century, you know, what is it about the Cold War in the 1950s and 1960s uh, that creates these new forms of how Muslims imagine themselves on the world stage and what kinds of partnerships they think are necessary uh, to achieve or improve the, uh, the fortunes of, of Muslims in the world? You mentioned Iran several times. Did Iran's 1979 revolution ushered in a new era for Islam or Islam internationalism? Or was it an inflection in the history of Islam, at least political Islam? Uh, I think certainly you have to say so. Um, you know, really prior to the uh, revolution in Iran, um, you know, very few people thought that um, 
you know, Islam would be a uh, sort of a meaningful ideological uh, force on the on the world stage. Uh, you know, this is a world in which people still thought the primary ideological conflict was between Western-style capitalism and and uh, Soviet-style communism. Um, and um, you know, with the Iranian Revolution, we have really a, a new ideological force, one that is um, anti-American, uh, anti-Western imperialism, certainly. Uh, but that in the end turned out to be very um, hostile towards um, Iranian communists um, in particular. And so, you know, in that regard, certainly it was a, it was a major event. And the fact that it took place in a uh, Shia majority country and created a, um, uh, a polity with very specific Shia features um, had major impacts on the ways that uh, Sunni Islamists around the world thought about their project and, and tried to formulate a response. Does any of this relate to Afghanistan and the rise of Taliban? I asked that question specifically because in the previous segment, Professor Noonan, you said, and I'm paraphrasing here, that Taliban are not interested in internationalism. Did I say that correctly? They're not inter interested in internationalism in the sense that they don't, you know, they 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 don't have um, they they don't view themselves as the leader of a global. Uh, Uma, that is to say, a global Muslim community. I think they're very content with, you know, being inside of the borders of Afghanistan. They don't think that they're, you know, uh, they don't claim leadership over American Muslims or, uh, you know, Muslims in, uh, um, you know, Morocco uh, or something. Whereas in early periods, uh, lands, yeah, right, right. They're they're kind of uh, nationalists, you might say. I see. So they're not looking per se to to export their their ideology at this point anyway that's correct they might have foreign relations with other countries uh bilateral relations but they are not claiming that you know all muslims should live in one uh government they're perfectly fine with uh you know qataris living in, in qatar uh or turks living in turkey uh, you know indonesians living in indonesian uh, etc i see in the previous segment you mentioned the role of NGOs in Afghanistan's history and how they were actually like almost a state within a state running things, you know, <laughs> collecting garbage and what or what have you. The title of one of your published works is Humanitarian Invasion, Global Development in Cold War Afghanistan. In this title, you're, you're juxtaposing two words that are not usually used together, Professor Newton, uh, humanitarian and invasion. One suggests compassion and generosity. The other term, invasion, is, is, comes from war. Explains your, your please, uh, your curious sort of choice of title here. Yeah, well, um, in my first book, one of the themes that I was really interested in is how um, Afghanistan in the 1980s became, in my opinion, um, a really crucial laboratory for new forms of humanitarian NGO work. Um, you know, listeners to the program- In the 1980s, you said? Yes, during the uh, years of the Soviet occupation. Soviet, okay. Yeah, uh, so yeah, without going into too much detail, um, you know, listeners to the program might be familiar with um, uh, uh, humanitarian NGOs, such as uh, Doctors Without Borders. Yeah, yeah. There are also groups like uh, Amnesty International, uh, or Human Rights Watch, um, and uh, these groups, you know, have a history. Uh, some of them, some of them date back to the 1960s, as in the case of Amnesty International. Um, but a lot of the groups that I was interested in, such as Doctors Without Borders, uh, really emerged in a big way in the 1970s. 
And one of the themes that I'm interested in in the book is to look at how these humanitarian aid organizations uh, really emerged out of a context in which they saw themselves as being kind of anti-communist, uh, being against um, sort of third world socialist regimes such as those in uh, Ethiopia or uh, Vietnam uh, or Afghanistan. And you know, one thing that's interesting in my opinion is a lot of the folks involved in these organizations had been very in favor of the Vietnamese and their war against the United States um, in the 1960s and the early 1970s. And yet due to the atrocities that the Vietnamese committed and due to atrocities in places like uh, communist uh, Cambodia, many of these actors kind of flip and become very anti-communist by the end of the, the 1970s. And so I became interested in the book as to like how these Western activists who had once been very into Vietnam, very into third world revolution, end up partnering with Afghan Islamists of all people um, and begin sort of building a sort of proto-state inside of uh, Soviet occupied Afghanistan. So this is sort of part of the story I'm interested in. And I call it humanitarian invasion because you have these actors who on the one hand are you know, interested in things like health and education and, and sanitation, um, but they are kind of doing these projects on the back of these Mujahideen armies um, in the 1980s. They didn't have NGOs humanitarian and development efforts brought stability to Afghans, Afghanistan's government uh, in the 80s and in later years? It doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, no, I think that, um, well, you know, we, should, we shouldn't uh, generalize uh, too much, but I think that um, there have always been, uh, you know, one thing I highlight in the book is that um, there have always been problems of uh, geopolitics and of the kind of moral choices that that organizations uh, had to make. Um, you know, in the case of, of geopolitics, we have this, this factor whereby um, sometimes certain Afghan parties become overly reliant on, on one superpower. Uh, this then triggers sort of civil wars. This has happened multiple times in, in Afghanistan's history. Um, and when it comes to humanitarian projects, one thing that I'm interested in the book is, you know, on the, on the one hand, when a lot of these organizations became involved in Afghanistan in the late 70s, in early 1980s, they were very much about saying, you know, we are not interested in politics. Uh, we don't care about communism or capitalism. We just wanna save people's lives. But in the context of the 1990s, like after the Soviets had left and after a civil war had begun inside of Afghanistan, they faced new kind of questions about morality and, and doing these humanitarian projects. You know, for instance, if, um, if uh, we are being attacked or targeted by other Afghan groups, uh, should we have European aid workers inside of the country? Um, you know, these kinds of moral debates became very complex for them. Uh, and these are some of the themes I try to highlight in the book. Do you think NGOs have created dependencies in countries such as Afghanistan to the extent that um, the, the governments, the local governments themselves are not doing the functions that they're supposed to do as a government? Uh, I, I think that we can uh, say that. I, I think that uh, Afghanistan is a particularly extreme case due to the extreme case. Oh wow! Okay. Due to the um, due to some of the patterns I discussed um, earlier, you know, um, Afghanistan has a Ministry of Education. It has you know ministries of of uh, health. It has uh, all of these uh, 
uh, ministries in which, um, in theory, hundreds or thousands of uh, civil servants uh, should be working. Uh, the problem is, in order to keep those people employed and, and sort of fund their salaries, uh, you had to have external subsidies uh, coming into the country, whether from the United States in the last 20 years or potentially uh, from China in the future. So in Afghanistan, you, you don't just have this problem that you might have in a, in a country like, say, uh, you know, Kenya or, um, you know, Bangladesh or something, uh, but you have this, this additional problem that historically something like 40 to 50 percent of the Afghan state's budget has been funded by foreign subsidies. Wow, so, 40 to 50 percent. Yeah, so just keeping the the kind of uh, uh, the government funded at all to say nothing of this dependency uh, factor that you're describing is um, is a major challenge and a major pattern in in Afghanistan's history. I think that's what distinguishes it from other cases of of uh, post colonial societies. We'll be back after a short break to talk about the Soviets, USSR in Afghanistan. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the Peel.News podcast. And it's easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and attributions to our theme music. And thank you. Professor Noonan, what was Afghanistan like during the Soviet occupation? Before we get into sort of day-to-day life or government functioning, I sort of have an ideological question for you, and we touched on this in the previous segment. I mean, how do Islam and communism mixed? As I understand it, God doesn't really play a major role in communism, but Allah plays a central role in Islam. So how did communism, you know, work out in Afghanistan? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a good question. It was obviously one of the kind of central uh, tensions um, in the 1980s. I think to zoom out for a little bit, we ought to say that um, historically there have been many attempts, uh, some more successful than others, to unify uh, Islam and communism. In the early years of the Soviet Union, um, many uh, uh, sort of Islamic socialists, in particular in Tatarstan, a, a, a Muslim region of Russia, uh, were very interested in, in Tatarstan. Yes, Tatarstan. Yeah were very interested in ideas of um, Islamic socialism and and the Soviet Union was more anti-religious at certain periods of its history uh, than others. Uh, you know, something that uh, maybe uh, lay people do not know is that the Soviet Union uh, built a kind of religious bureaucracy uh, for Muslims. So there were, you know, state, uh, state employed, uh, state funded um, kind of mullahs and, and imams and uh, these uh, figures were often trotted out on the world stage to conduct diplomacy with other Muslim scholars uh, from countries like Turkey or Saudi Arabia um, or Pakistan. Oh, wow. So, um, you know, particularly for the period after the, the 1960s or 1970s or so, um, it's not so simple as, um, you know, Cold War propaganda uh, would have had it, uh, although we, we ought not to go overboard and say that it was a it was a great place with uh, total freedom of religion. It uh, it wasn't. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, certainly. So would uh, these yeah. sort of Muslim uh, 
bureaucrats slash scholars that were exported or went as emissaries from the USSR, were they to sort of proselytize for communism or were they literally negotiating and just creating some sort of dialogue? Well, they were interested, I think, in, uh, they had many functions. They were involved on the one hand in um, uh, securing, you know, the passage of Soviet Muslims to uh, uh, the holy uh, cities in, uh, in the Arabian Peninsula, Mecca and Medina. Uh, they were interested in, um, you know, discussing um, challenges of Islamic education. There were state, you know, we talked earlier about madrasas in Pakistan. Mm -hmm. There were also mm -hmm. madrasas in the Soviet Union. Um, but they also took on a diplomatic function as well. Um, you know, the Soviet Union, for example, didn't have diplomatic relations with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Um, and it didn't? Oh, that's news to me. Wow. Okay. And, um, you know, if you wanted to liaise with, um, you know, this uh, uh, monarchy sending a uh, sort of, uh, uh, let's say, Russian uh, atheist, uh, communist uh, uh, bureaucrat may not be the best uh, person to uh, <laughs> deliver the message. But yeah. if you can find a uh, Tajik or Uzbek um you know, Islamic scholar from one of the uh, Central Asian republics of the Soviet Union, uh, these kinds of guys can uh, are be more plausible um, messengers uh, for uh, the Soviet Union. And, and not only the Soviet Union as a communist state, but as a, you know, kind of developed uh, modern uh, state. Uh, they would like to point out the fact that levels of education, levels of women's employment, uh, health, uh, sanitation, uh, et cetera, et cetera, were superior in places like Soviet Uzbekistan or uh, Kazakhstan than they were in, let's say, Egypt or uh, you know uh, uh, Pakistan or uh, Bangladesh uh, and so on. Why did the USSR go into Afghanistan? Well, the uh, short answer is they went into Afghanistan to overthrow a Afghan communist regime that they thought was very erratic and would potentially. Uh, hand the country over to the United States. Um, you know, broadly, the Soviet Union did not have a long-term plan to, to, you know, occupy and invade Afghanistan. There were kind of conspiracy theories in the Cold War that, you know, the Russians are always looking for uh, warm water ports to, yeah, to, to dominate that, yeah. the world. Um, you know, there, there's, there's really no uh, credible archival evidence uh, of this. Um, you know, instead, I think what we have is a picture of USSR being more or less happy with Afghanistan being a neutral country that would not create problems for it. Um, but uh, in 1978, Afghan communists had a coup d'etat without permission or encouragement from the Soviet Union and proceeded to implement uh, what they saw as communism in a very chaotic and uh, violent uh, fashion, which essentially led to the situation spiraling out of control. And the Soviet Union felt that it had to intervene murder some of these Afghan communists and replace them with different Afghan communists to stabilize the situation. Was the previous uh, uh, Afghan communist that uh, communist uh, government that they overthrew a client state or was that something that had just organically grown in uh, Afghanistan and taken power? Uh, well, uh, I think the short answer is that it was a client state. Uh, it, it, is, uh, it, it is a good question, but um, you know, fundamentally, when the uh, Afghan communists uh, seized power in April of 1978, uh, the Soviet Union at that point had kind of a blueprint for what it meant to transform states in what we would call the global south and what people then call the third world um, you know, into a socialist state. So you know, once this happened, 
uh, in 78, the Soviet Union could dispatch all of these advisors who would tell the Afghans, look, here's how you're going to rewrite your laws. Here's how you should restructure your enterprises. Here's how trade unions should be organized. Uh, here's how your judicial systems should work, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, you know, many, you know, many aid dollars or aid rubles, if you like, uh, flowed. So to that extent, we can describe Afghanistan, I think, before and after uh, uh, the invasion itself in 79 as a uh, client state, uh, you know, starting from that period in April 78. What was life like in Afghanistan during uh, USSR's Soviet uh, occupation? Well, again, I think we come to the question of, um, you know, Kabul versus, um, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, local regions. Um, I think probably the, the thing that we have to start out by saying is that uh, it was very violent uh, for uh, a lot of people. Um, you know, something on the order of a, of a million or so Afghans were killed uh, by the uh, Soviet Union. Um, you know, several million others were uh, turned into refugees or displaced, um, whether internally or to neighboring countries. Uh, such as Pakistan and um, Iran, and and you know really, uh, this is kind of the, uh, uh, the 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 domino that that sets off the uh, the sort of world in which we live in uh, today. If we think back to the story of, of of Afghan men studying in these Pakistani madrasas, a lot of this stuff doesn't happen if the Soviet Union doesn't invade and displace these people out of these rural uh, agrarian uh, communities that they had been living in. Um, but, um, you know, I, I guess to come back to the nub of your question, um, Adele, um, you know, we have in Kabul this attempt to create a kind of modern socialist um, uh, utopia, if you like, that includes, uh, you know, women being employed in the bureaucracy, uh, that includes, um, you know, international conferences where uh, Afghanistan is presenting itself as, as sort of the latest, uh, uh, newest member of the anti-imperialist movement, you know, we are going to push back against American imperialism. We're going to push back against the Chinese. We are kind of the new Vietnam uh, in a good sense. <laughs> uh, you know, we are we are going to uh, be a, a new victory and the anti-imperialist march. And, and we hope that other movements that, um, you know, like in Palestine or Nicaragua, El Salvador, uh, et cetera, will, will sort of follow uh, our path. Um, but of course, uh, much of this is, is only uh, possible under the security blanket of uh, Soviet uh, forces. How would you just how would you compare the presence of USSR versus USA in Afghanistan? Did was the quality of life better during USA's uh, presence versus USSR's? Of course, that question again gets split up into: Are we talking about Kabul or rural areas? Uh, well, it's uh, it's difficult to say. I think I, I think you have to say for most people it was uh, you know it has been very bad under under both uh it's it's perhaps hard to say uh, uh which one was worse uh but um you know recently scholars like uh, adam twos ha have looked at some of the numbers and uh you know while the american occupation certainly uh you know led to an enormous amount of afghan uh, uh deaths and and casualties the soviet occupation was uh in a certain objective sense more violent and that more afghans certainly died as a result of it soviet rules of engagement i think were um, you know, even worse than, than sort of American drone violence um, has been, um, you know, these uh, one kind of little known fact is that the Soviet Union essentially um, made the, uh, the entire kind of northern border of Afghanistan, which bordered the Soviet Union, of course, into a free fire zone. So 
like essentially Soviet troops were just sort of told that you can like kill anybody in a hundred kilometer, like maybe 60 mile zone wow. uh, south of the Soviet border. Um, so uh, yeah, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty horrible. Uh, but wow. um, uh, you know, uh, you, you know, this is not to excuse any of the violence or corruption of the uh, past uh, 20 years, but um, you know, the Soviet union was, you know, in the business of creating a, uh, uh, a liberal, you know, communist parties that did not rule via democratic legitimacy. Uh, and, uh, yeah. you know, the, the Soviet Union was kind of bad at a lot of things, but it was, you know, pretty good at, at making uh, uh, landmines and helicopters and uh, rockets and, and uh, so on. And, and uh, you know, it, it, it applied that violence to a lot of places in the third world with, with really catastrophic consequences from, you know, Ethiopia to Angola to Afghanistan. Yeah. Let's take a break here. Stay with me and Professor Noonan as we get into the perspective. <music> Professor Noonan, how has the Taliban's victory changed Afghanistan? Uh, well, um, you know, I think that it has exposed how, um, uh, I think it's shown how that um, even if the American occupation was, uh, you know, clearly a resounding failure in terms of building a Afghan state, I think um, it in certain regards uh, created a, at least in, in urban centers, an Afghan society uh, that has different demands and aspirations uh, from the world of the uh, 1990s. Uh, I'm personally tremendously inspired by you know, images I've seen of, of uh, women uh, and men protesting uh, in Afghan cities against uh, the Taliban's uh, rule. It takes um, a tremendous amount of courage to do that now, doesn't it? Uh, it does. And I, I think we have a generation that simply has different um, expectations. Uh, you know, we have uh, social media obviously playing a role in terms of how people imagine their lives or imagine their uh, aspirations, which, you know, obviously didn't exist. Uh, in uh, 1996. Um, and, uh, you know, we have, a, at least in the case of Kabul, a much more um, urban uh, city and, and one that was not a battlefield for like, you know, four or five years in the way it was in the 1990s. So in, in you know, while I think the, uh, you know, I, I'm, I, I, I don't have very good ideas about how to resist the Taliban uh, at the moment, I, I do think that what's very different at least is you have a urban educated society with uh, aspirations and demands and they're living in a city that wasn't reduced to rubble due to like five years of, of kind of Stalingrad style uh, uh, combat. So yeah, this is, yeah. I think, going to, 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 you know, beyond the points that we addressed earlier about uh, international interlocutors and practice versus image, you know, the Taliban are really inheriting a uh, city that's kind of um, intact, um, traumatized, but kind of intact uh, in a way. And I think that that presents um, uh, novel dynamics that, you know, we'll, we'll have to see how they develop. Do you think uh, the Taliban's victory has changed the world of Islam? And I appreciate, admittedly, this question is really vague and sort of broad because the world of Islam is so diverse and different, you know? So, but still, I think the question merits asking. Well, uh, it's, it, it's interesting. I think what's, um, I think what's maybe notable uh, if, if we contrast this moment with, um, you know, 1970, um, 
1979 or even 1975 is, you know, this has certainly been a uh, humiliation for the United States. And uh, I mean, 1975 was uh, the, the Saigon moment, the rooftop moment. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's certainly been, a, a, I think, a blow to uh, U.S. Uh, pretensions to be able to do nation building or, or lead something called the international, uh, you know, liberal order or, or what have you. Um, but uh, I think what's interesting is that in contrast to like the Vietnam moment or the moment of the Iranian revolution, um, you know, I get less of a sense, at least from sources I've seen thus far, that, you know, um, you know, say Boko Haram or, um, you know, certainly ISIS or- and Boko or Haram other, is in Africa, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. Uh, I, I get less of a sense that this is sort of being seen as a, uh, a global uh, historical event in terms of lessons for other uh, liberation movements or resistance movements um, around the world, and indeed, if we come back to this, um, to some of the, we circle back around to some of the points that we addressed earlier. Uh, what's notable is that uh, ISIS uh, has a presence in Afghanistan, and and you know one way to think about this this contrast here is uh, the Taliban is more of a kind of nationalist uh, Pashtun national uh, regime, whereas uh, ISIS, while it has a very different social base in Afghanistan too is about kind of global UMA, about transnational links, about, you know, overcoming the, the, uh, the, the nation state. And in a way, I think what's interesting is that the Taliban, one of their first moves has been to say like, look, we want to conduct foreign diplomacy with other states, including states that have very large Muslim populations. They don't want to, you know, liberate the Uyghurs of China. They don't want to attach uh, Tatarstan, that Muslim region of Russia to Afghanistan or something. They don't, want to, they don't want to like annex parts of uh, Iran. They're very comfortable inside of their kind of national unit. And I think that's one interesting difference. There's less of a sense of kind of a global- and if that's the know, case, they way. may actually prevent the ISIS from taking too deep of a route in Afghanistan then. Uh, yeah, I think that will be, you know, I, I think, uh, uh, I, I think I'll avoid uh, speculation uh, for, for now, but uh, uh, yes, I think that, uh, you know, all of the governments in the region, um, you know, uh, are very fearful about ISIS uh, recruiting, and I, I, um, uh, I, I am worried. You know, I, I you know, certainly, you know, I, I, I sympathize with uh, neither uh, group. But I, I think one thing that we have to keep an eye on is whether states like, say, Uzbekistan or uh, China or Pakistan will say, well, you know, the the Taliban is is um, is uh, uh, barbaric and so on, but uh, we really uh, view uh, ISIS as a bigger recruiting problem because of its sort of message, because of its media programming and so on and so forth. And, you know, they might prefer trying to work with the Taliban uh, against uh, uh, ISIS. I think that's that's one thing that anybody who is a uh, friend of the uh, Afghan people should be very uh, concerned about. If you wanted our audience to remember just one point about Afghanistan, what would it be? Well, I, I think I would, um, just emphasize that you know we we've had a discussion about kind of geopolitics and uh, religion and yeah. uh, history to some extent. Um, I think it's really important to remember that you know Afghans also produce art, they produce poetry, they produce uh, music, and um, I guess maybe one concrete tip or piece of advice would be for um, uh, folks who are listening to maybe Google a uh, Afghan uh, singer named uh, Ahmad Zahir A H M A D Z A H-I-R. Uh, we talked a bit about 1979 in terms of like Iran and Soviet invasion. Ahmad Zahir was kind of like the Elvis of Afghanistan. He was a really popular pop singer 
uh, in Afghanistan's history and remains really kind of a cult icon today. And he, he died in 1979. And, you know, I'd encourage listeners to maybe look at one of these music videos, to listen to some of the music. You know, I, I think it's very common to view Afghanistan primarily through this lens of sort of regional geopolitics and uh, great power politics and so on. And, you know, that's, uh, that's, that's certainly um, uh, important. Uh, that's, that's in the news. But I think it's also important to remember that, you know, Afghans uh, sort of, you know, have been victims of this. I've been subjected to a lot of the, the this violence, and uh, you know, they want to you know raise their families to produce art, music, uh, poetry, etc., just as much as uh, you know we other do. People do, yeah. That's a great point. Um, yeah, that they're not much different than we are in their aspirations and their desire to be happy. Uh, Professor Yunin, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. You're welcome back to the Peel.News anytime. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At the Peel.News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit, to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at the Peel.News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our current events. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving comments about this episode on our Instagram page at the peel.news. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with the peel.news.